0: You're listening to The Word of Hope, a radio ministry of Hope Lutheran Church in Aurora, Colorado. Our preacher is Pastor Brian Wolfmuller with today's Word of Hope.
1: Indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you thinks he offers a service to God. You may be seated. In the name of Jesus, amen. Dear Saints, Christ is ascended for you. To send forth His Spirit for you. To pray to the Father for you. So to forgive your sins. And dwell with you. Now and always according to His promises. We considered this on Thursday on the Ascension Eve. How Jesus does all of these things that He did after His resurrection and even into His ascension. He does all of these things with a light heart. With a joyful heart. Even in a playful way. Because Jesus, our Jesus has passed from death to life. From sorrow unto joy. He has passed "...through this veil of tears and entered the bliss of the Father's right hand and now dwells there eternally." He he is seated in the heavenly places, and by faith we are seated there with Him. By faith we have that joy that Jesus has, the joy set before Him, through which He endured the cross and the shame and entered into it. But we have that joy by faith, not by sight, and our sight is much different." We see trouble. We see suffering. We see sin. And we see death. And we feel it. And we taste it. That's what our life is. Now, much of the troubles that we have in this life comes simply because we live in a sinful and fallen world. Since the very first sin of Adam... Eve, the universe has been unwinding. The world is falling apart. And in our various vocations that the Lord has given us, we are doing what we can to try to keep this whole thing together. The farmer coaxes the food from the ground. The the doctor works to persuade life to stick with a body. (laughs) Perhaps of all the vocations that the Lord has given to, to keep this universe from unraveling, there stands above all the high and glorious vocation of mother right? Happy Mother's Day, by the way. To bring forth life, to care for children and to train them in the Lord's Word, to bring order and beauty into a home as only mothers can do. But in spite of this and in spite of all of our efforts, uh, loving our neighbor and caring for this world, it's still crumbling. People still suffer. There is still sin and there is still death. Now, That we are in a sinful world is most of the time the answer to the question, why, pastor, is this suffering happening to me? Or why is this suffering happening to my loved one? We live in a world that is corrupted by sin. Things are bad, generally. But there is an even more specific kind of suffering that comes only to the Christian piled on top of all of the normal suffering that this world has for everyone in it, we, the Lord's Christians, get an extra scoop of affliction. <laughs> and this is called by the name persecution. Persecution is the attack of the devil and the world on the Lord's people, on the Lord's church, and on the Lord's word, which, is a, which establishes the church. And this is the unique and specific type of suffering that Jesus is talking about in the text. This is from John 16, verses 1 to 3. Jesus says, I have said all these things to you to keep you from falling away. They'll put you out of the synagogue. Indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think that he is offering a service to God. And they will do these things because they have not known the Father nor me. These words of Jesus are stunning. In fact, I I think they're haunting, just to think about them. The hour is coming when whoever kills you will think he is offering a service to God. There will be a time, says Jesus, when killing Christians, when murdering those who call upon the name of Jesus, would be considered worship, a good work. In fact, the best of all good works, praise to God. And this is difficult to understand. Perhaps as the world grows closer to the end, it will become more obvious. But still, I think it's difficult. I mean, on the one hand, we know of times when a person sins and they think that they're doing a good work. This happens all of the time, in fact, even to us. So, for example, a false teacher who is truly deceived about their teaching stands up and preaches false doctrine. And they're sinning when they do that, and yet they think they are doing a good work. You see this? This kind of deception? Or, or we could see this in the political world, too, when politicians are systematically cutting the cords that bind an orderly society together, not considering a child to be a child until it's born, or redefining marriage, or whatever it is the latest debate. This is cutting at the commandments that the Lord has established. It's sin, but, and this is the point, they are done in such a way that those who are doing them think and truly do believe that they are accomplishing a good work. And this temptation is for us as well this temptation of calling evil good or good evil, of being convinced of ourselves that whatever it is that we like or whatever it is that we care about, that that thing is the greatest good, and so we go about sinning thinking that we're doing a good deed. And normally it's justified by something like this. It just felt like the right thing to do, hogwash. (laughs) We judge our feelings. We don't use our feelings to judge our thinking and our action. And this, by the way, is why the Ten Commandments are so important. They play such an important role in the Christian life because the goodness of a good work is not determined by sincerity or about how good you feel about it because our feelings can be wrong. In fact, they can be very wrong. The good part of a good work it comes from God's Word, specifically His law, His commandments. But Jesus, in the text, is talking about this, uh, this phenomenon taken to its extreme that Christian murder is considered worship. Now again, this kind of, uh, this kind of confusion about right and wrong is difficult for us to imagine, and so we know where it comes from. I mean, this kind of uh, persecution comes from the blind rage and the insane fury of the devil against Jesus, and so against his church, and that is, against you. It is the insanity of the devil's hatred for Jesus that alone can explain this delusion that Jesus talks about. And he taught us this over and over. They hated me before they hated you. Now, this hatred of the devil for the church, which is the hatred of the devil for you, intensifies through time. It doesn't wear out. The devil, and this is important, I think, for us to consider. The devil is no less mad at you than he was in the garden with Adam and Eve. He is no less furious at you than he was when he stood by as Cain crushed Abel or when he was tempting Pharaoh to throw the Hebrew babies into the Nile, or when Herod's soldiers were tramping through Bethlehem. The devil is no less mad now than he was at the time of Paul during the riots of Ephesus and Philippi, or when the the Caesars were feeding the Christians to the lions or burning them at the stake for refusing to say, Caesar is Lord. We consider during the time of Lent how it was that the New Testament, remember this, has expectations uh, about the Christian life that we don't share. And chief among them is this. The New Testament expects that Christians will die for their faith. The New Testament church lived with the expectation of martyrdom. And we don't. At least I'm speaking for myself. We have lost this sense. I think, personally, I think that I will probably die from some sort of sickness or from some sort of accident. I, myself, do not expect that I will be murdered by some official who thinks that in killing me, he's worshiping God. The Concordia health plan doesn't include martyrdom. But we see this lingering sense of expectation of trouble in the rite of confirmation. Remember this? All of us have have answered these questions publicly. Do you intend to hear the word of God and receive the Lord's Supper faithfully? Answer, I do by the grace of God. Do you intend to live according to the word of God in faith, word, and deed to remain true to God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, even to death? Answer, I do by the grace of God. Here it is, ready? The martyrdom question. Do you intend to continue steadfast in this confession and church and to suffer all, even death, rather than fall away from it? Answer, I do, by the grace of God. All of us who have been confirmed have spoken those words, but I'm afraid that what we meant when we said, I do, by the grace of God, was something more like, sure, whatever. (laughs) Whatever. But these questions were forged in the fires of persecution, and they show an awareness, a true awareness of the devil who raged against the Lord's church and who still rages. These questions show an understanding that confirmation is really a preparation for martyrdom, that we really are baptized into Christ's death, and that one of the main goals of preaching is to prepare the church, to prepare you for a martyr's death. But how many, and this is the question that kind of faces us, I suspect, how many in the last generation who have made that promise have seen it come to pass? How many people who promised to stay faithful unto death actually did die because of their faith? The answer? None. At least not here in the United States. We have, I'll make the contested statement again, and you guys can fuss with me after church. We have in the United States never seen a Christian martyr... It is today for us very safe to confess our faith. I'm standing here in, in this pulpit not at all worried about my own life for preaching Christ. Persecution seems to us far away. And this is to our shame. When we look at the scriptures in the early church, we see that not everyone was troubled. Most of the Christians, most of the time, in most places, lived in peace. Persecution came in waves, in little pockets. Stephen, for example, was martyred, but the rest of the apostles lived and were free. Paul was thrown in prison, but his companions were let to go wherever they wanted. John was exiled to Patmos, but the families of his congregation were left in Ephesus. The agony of the persecution of the church was not only because the church in every place was suffering persecution, but because the church in some place was suffering persecution. The Christians in Corinth suffered because the Christians in Jerusalem were starving. The Christians in Antioch suffered because the Christians in Rome were being put to death. If you are to bang your knee on a corner, your head doesn't say, I'm glad things are going pretty well up here. The body of Christ, which is spread throughout the world, knows the pain of persecution, and we know it today. This last century, the 20th century, was the bloodiest century in the history of mankind, and much of that bleeding and dying was specifically because of the name of Jesus. There are pastors and evangelists locked up in Iran, in China, in Pakistan, and in Vietnam this morning because they preached Christ, because they believe in Jesus, I write emails uh, every now and again back and forth uh, to a friend who's in China and he has to put the word Jesus and the word God in code because it's screened out by the government there. Here's the report from the Voice of the Martyrs, an organization that keeps track of this stuff. In more than 40 nations around the world today, Christians are being persecuted for their faith. In some nations, it's illegal to own a Bible or illegal to share your faith. It's illegal to change your faith or to teach your children about Jesus. And in those nations, those who do follow Christ, in spite of governmental edict or radical opposition, face harassment, yes, arrest, torture, and even death. And yet Christians continue to meet and worship and witness Christ. And the church in these restricted nations is growing. There are Christians our brothers and sisters in Christ who are suffering. So we suffer. We suffer with them. We are the persecuted. And we pray for them every day for the Lord's persecuted church. But still we have the question... And I I really wouldn't mind your help in reflecting on this question. We have the question of this. Why do we not face the same troubles here in Aurora, Colorado, that our Christian brothers and sisters face through all uh, all the world? I think this is an important question for us to consider. I, I wonder about it all the time and wonder how long this will last. I think the first part of this consideration is that there is a formula which we know for avoiding persecution. And this formula is only one word. The Bible teaches and our faith confesses that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father but through Him. This needs only be adjusted slightly to avoid any, any whiff of persecution to read this. Jesus, instead of Jesus is the way, we simply say Jesus is A way. Instead of saying Jesus is the truth, we say Jesus is a truth. Jesus is a life. That one slight adjustment ends persecution because that one slight adjustment takes away the the offense of the cross and it also takes away the benefit of the cross. Because as the Bible says clearly, there is salvation under no other name. I wonder sometimes if the reason why the church isn't persecuted is because the church isn't clear (laughs) Because the church has not stood and confessed clearly the one and unique saving office of Jesus. That's perhaps one answer. But there's another option. I wonder if perhaps the Lord in his mercy, recognizing our weaknesses, has protected us from trouble and persecution. Because the Lord knows how how shallow our roots are, how our hearts are faint, how our courage is weak. And so the Lord, to keep us in the faith, has kept the devil at bay. This is perhaps an option as well. And maybe there are other reasons. But it is our duty then, as Christians, and especially on this day, to hear the words of Jesus and to believe them and to be warned. Again, he says this. The hour is coming when whoever kills you will think that he is offering a service to God. There is a warning. But there is comfort here for us as well. And we find the comfort in this. The same Jesus who promised that whoever kills you thinks he offers a service to God, is the one who died for you and said he will never leave you or forsake you. The same devil who is killing you is the one who killed Jesus. The same world that hates you and hates the church hates Jesus. And the world and the devil hate you Precisely because Jesus loves you. They hate you precisely because Jesus forgives you. They hate you because you have life and nothing can take it from you. So, rage as he will, the devil cannot, the devil cannot take what matters. He cannot take Jesus. He cannot undo the cross. He cannot stuff the Lord back into the grave or wretch him out of the right hand of the Father. The devil is weak and is impotent to destroy your life. And this gives us peace. So we are ready. I think we are ready. And prepared for whatever the devil has in store for us whatever individual suffering that you might undergo, whatever suffering and persecution that the devil would unfold for the church, you are ready because you have Jesus and because he has you. And this is all you need. Amen. And now may the peace of God, which passes all understanding, guard your heart and mind through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen.